Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for showing up. I'm very excited about this particular episode of Money Concepts. So this is a special episode. We usually do this on Sundays, uh, but this time we have a very special guest, uh, Brian Feroldi. And uh, so uh, we, we are doing it on a, on a Wednesday this time uh, to accommodate Brian. Um, so Brian is one of the best financial educators uh, in the world. I first met him through Twitter and we discovered each other's accounts on Twitter at around the same time. Uh, we started following each other. And since then we, we've had several DM exchanges and uh, a couple of calls and so on. And through all this, Brian has taught me several things. And not just that, he has made my investing journey so much more enjoyable than it would have been if I hadn't met him. Uh, and part of that is because Brian is such a positive person. Uh, he genuinely wants to help everybody around him. And when, when, when the people around him succeed, he genuinely feels happy for them and roots for them. Uh, this is such a rare quality. And the other thing I really like about Brian is he's full of energy and enthusiasm. So there are some people, you just talk to them for five minutes and they are so enthusiastic and their enthusiasm and energy are so infectious that after those five minutes, you feel your own energy sort of going up. And Brian is one of those persons for me. He's very inspiring. And uh, Brian is also a big believer in the power of having a mission statement. So if you look at Brian's portfolio, which he shares uh, on some platforms, it's full of companies that are very, very mission driven as opposed to simply being profit driven. And these companies, they, they have a particular mission. They want to change something about the world. And all their actions uh, are guided by this mission that they have. And one of the things that I learned from Brian is that this applies not just to companies, it can also apply to individuals like us. And Brian feels that each one of us uh, should sort of set a mission for ourselves in life. And then everything we do, we should sort of do it with that mission in mind uh, to try and advance that mission. This is such a powerful idea that I learned from Brian. And so what is Brian's mission in life? Uh, and the mission that he has set for himself is to spread financial wellness. That, that is his mission, to spread financial wellness. And he does this in many different ways. Um, for example, he, he has this wonderful Twitter account that he uses to educate us all about investing. Uh, he has this email newsletter uh, that encourages people to cultivate a long-term mindset when it comes to investing. Uh, he has appeared on several podcasts. Uh, so for example, uh, my, my favorite podcast where Brian has uh, appeared, uh, other than the one we are doing right now, is, uh, is this thing called uh, we, we Study Billionaires. And in, in that podcast, Brian outlines, uh, it gives us all a checklist for what to look for in a company before you go and invest in it. And that, that is such a wonderful checklist. And it made me, uh, uh, it, it made me think uh, all, all his points there are very valid and they made me think much more about uh, this process of stock selection for portfolios. Uh, then in addition to that, Brian also has a YouTube channel where he 
shows us how to analyze various kinds of companies and businesses. Uh, and now, finally, Brian is out with a with a book, and uh, the the book is called "Why Does the Stock Market Go Up?" And uh, so Brian was kind enough to uh, send me an advance copy, and I just finished reading it. And I must say, it's it's just a wonderful book. I think it's a must read, especially for people who are new to investing. And uh, there there are two things I really like about this book. The first thing is it's easy to read. Uh, it's it's not a kind of book like security analysis or something like that, which is a very difficult to read book on investing. Uh, so this this book is full of short sentences, short paragraphs, short chapters. So I I don't think there's any any chapter in this book that's longer than five pages or something like that. So Brian in every single chapter Brian gets straight to the point and tells you exactly what you want to know. Uh, so uh, I, I really like this book for that one reason. Uh, and the second reason I like this book is it focuses on fundamental concepts. So uh, when when someone just gets into investing, when I first got into investing, for example, uh, I had lots of misconceptions about how things worked. Uh, so just to give you a, a, an example, so Apple, for example, one, one share of Apple is about $150 or something like that today. And one, one share of Amazon is, uh, is $3,000 today. Uh, so does that mean that Amazon is uh, 20 times as valuable as Apple? Um, so when I first started investing, if you had asked me this question, I would have probably said yes. Uh, so one share of Apple is $150. One share of Amazon is $3,000. 3000 divided by 150 is 20. So yeah, Amazon is about 20 times as valuable as Apple. And Brian's book, uh, uh, this this is of course the wrong answer. <laughs> uh, Apple is, uh, is a more valuable company than Amazon. <laughs> And uh, so uh, Brian's new book, it, it really helps eradicate all these kinds of misconceptions that new investors have uh, by focusing on fundamental concepts and explaining those fundamental concepts in a very simple way. So for example, when you, when you buy a stock, uh, let, let's say you spend uh, whatever, one, $150 and buy one share of Apple. So does that $150 go to Apple? This is a very natural question. A lot of people think that when you buy a stock, the company gets the money, but that's, that's not the case. The company doesn't get the money. And so all these little misconceptions that people have, this book is uh, sort of a one-stop shop to clear uh, all these misconceptions. Um, so so that, that's another reason why I really like this book. It focuses on fundamental concepts. Uh, so how, how is this episode going to be structured? So I'll kick this off by asking Brian a, a couple of questions, um, and and then uh, we, we'll we'll take callers, and you can ask Brian your your questions. Uh, so uh, the 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 first question I have for Brian is in in the book, uh, Brian, you you said you started life sort of as a as a golf uh, caddy, and you were listening to uh, those around you uh, talking about uh, the Dow went up today or the S and P five hundred went down today or something like that, and you got a general sense that you know when the stock market went up, people are generally happy, and when the stock market went down, not not so much. Uh, but you never actually understood uh, why the market goes up, or why is that a good thing, or uh, uh, how to take advantage of it, or a- anything like that when you were a golf caddy. But today, uh, you've just written this wonderful book about investing uh, that explains all these things. So can you? Talk a little bit about your, your journey 
from being that golf caddy to being this author here? Sure. Thanks so much for the warm introduction. Uh, as you know, I've been a big fan of your Twitter account ever since I discovered it in one of your many super threads. And I was like, my God, this guy is intelligent. Um, but uh, yeah, so so to, to answer your question, I think everybody listening to this and everybody um, that's has, has some vague knowledge or come into the uh, come into the contact with the stock market at some point in their in their life probably accidentally probably somebody says something in conversation or you hear on a news report or you see it in like a newspaper so that happened to me several times several times growing up and one of my first memories was as you said I was uh, a caddy at a local uh, golf uh, private golf club and in the middle of the round, the, the gol one golfer goes in, gets a hot dog, comes back out, and he says to the other golfers, he's like, you're not going to believe it. The, the Dow is up 300 points today. And, like, the, the other golfers were, like, so excited, and they were, like, very happy. And, like, you know, they all have big smiles on their faces. And I was like, I have no idea what the Dow Jones is. I have no idea why it's up today. But these guys all seem happy about that, and they're members at a private golf club. So that must be uh, a good thing. And then a couple years later, when I was in college, um, I vividly remember I was in college from 2000 to 2004. Uh, I vividly remember that was the peak of the dot com uh, bust. And I, like, like everybody else on September 11th, 2001, I was glued to my TV watching CNN uh, and the news all day about the terrorist attacks. And I just saw the, the, the following couple of days, if you pay attention to the news, that the, the stock market indices were just plunging, just just plunging. And I just remember thinking, like, I have no idea why that's happening, but obviously that's a bad thing. And I was like, well, that's it. You know, capitalism, it had a great run, right? It did go a long time, but obviously the stock market is never coming back. And it came back, right? And then when I graduated from college in, uh, in 2004, I still, despite being a business major, a, my major in school was business, I still had no fundamental understanding of what the stock market was, what a stock is, what moves stock prices, uh, etc. However, my, uh, my dad gave me a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, when I graduated from college, that was like right when that book was was taking off. And while there's lots of flaws in the book, and I don't agree with everything that um, the author says now, it was the first time that I'd ever read a book that opened up my eyes to some just very basic concepts about money, uh, things that I had never been told before, such as everybody is in business for themselves. You can become wealthy in one generation, right? Buy assets, things that produce income or go up in value, avoid liabilities. Uh, you can buy real estate, you can invest in stocks, there's many ways you can do so. And those concepts just blew my mind and I was just instantaneously attracted to them. And that just kicked off this love affair when I just started reading every book about money and investing that I could get my hands on. Gradually, uh, that included a book by Tom and David Gardner uh, called The Motley Fool Investment Guide. Uh, I started to visit their website, um, and I really started to learn about uh, how, uh, how to invest with a long-term mindset and why stocks go up and down uh, over time. And I had plenty of uh, – I had money in the markets uh, at that time, just in time for the, uh, the stock market to crash in, uh, in 2007 and 2008. So I felt that 
extreme pain uh, of, of holding money in the market and seeing my, the value of my portfolio decline and decline and decline. Now, at the time, for about a 10-year period, uh, when, I, when I was out of college, I, I, I hired as a um, – I became a sales representative at a medical device company that was rapidly growing. And one of the huge benefits of being in sales was I was literally in my car 30 to 35 hours per week. And while there were lots of people that I worked with that used that time to listen to Howard Stern, um, I used that time to binge listen to – earnings calls and read, uh, listen to audio uh, books and do everything I could to advance my own personal education about stocks and investing and personal finance. And I really gave myself a, a college level degree in how to invest and how businesses work uh, while driving around uh, in my car. Uh, in 2015, uh, things went south at that medical device company, uh, but I had a relationship with the Motley Fool that I'd established over the last couple of years, they took me on as a as a writer. Um, that was seven years ago, at this point, and I've written now three thousand plus articles for them. And investing, which is my favorite hobby, has become my uh, full time vo vocation. Um, but in 2020, when everything was going on in the, in the world, I had a chat with um, uh, Morgan Housel just before just before or after his book came out. And we were talking, and I mentioned for him that I had an idea for a book uh, called Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? And I always wondered why there wasn't a book that was really aimed at me when I was just starting out in investing. I mean, there's so many awesome books uh, that are out there, right? Like uh, One Up on Wall Street, uh, The Motley Fool uh, Investment Guide, John Bogle's. Uh, books, books about Warren Buffett. They're all fantastic. However, I never found that there was just a book that just explained the extreme basic concepts of investing that really answered some of the questions that I had uh, er early on. And I waited forever for somebody to kind of write it. But after talking with Morgan and uh, my other friend, Brian Stoffel, they kind of were like, well, maybe you're the one that's supposed to write this. And if you know me, I'm naturally bad at English. I'm bad at spelling. Like those are my we, those are my worst subjects uh, in school. So uh, the idea of like writing a book just seems like such a monumental challenge and something I would never have guessed that I would have uh, done. Uh, but I really wanted the book uh, to exist out there, and I've spent the last you know 18 months of my life uh, writing it. So that's how I got to where I am now. Uh, absolutely. So I, I think one reason why uh, that there may not be that many books talking about uh, uh, just the kinds of things that you, you mentioned, why does the stock market go up um, and all, all these things like what is a stock and things like that is uh, in order to be able to write this book, you sort of have to be uh, an expert on investing. And by the time you become an expert, it's very hard to sort of put yourself back in the shoes of when you didn't know any of these things. And maybe that, that's why it's much easier for, a, for an expert to write a book for other experts than to write a book for somebody, uh, for himself uh, when he was 10 years younger or something like that, right? Uh, yeah. Maybe that, that's why. 
Yeah, I mean, investing is filled with jargon, right? I mean, every industry is filled with jargon, but there's so many terms that get thrown around in investing that are just never explained, right? Uh, Dow Jones, price to earnings ratio, returns on returns on on capital, uh, etc. I mean, there's just so many terms to learn. It can seem overwhelming at first, but I would say that that's one thing that I've always uh, been having affinity for is 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 doing things, learning things myself, and then asking myself constantly, what do I wish that I could teach myself when I first started? And if you approach it from from that uh, point of view, um, that that's really the approach that I took to come up with the chapters for the book. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so so one one of the nuggets that uh, I came across in your book, uh, which which I did not know before, is that. Um, Today there are there are like trillions of dollars invested in 401ks, but if you if you look at the first 401k, the the way that this whole 401k was created, uh, it was actually an accident of history, and uh, that uh, that's how this whole thing uh, got started. And today uh, there are, there are trillions of dollars invested uh, into it. Uh, so do do you want to tell that story of uh, how how the 401k came to be? So I, I did not know about this when I uh, read your book. So that, that's one of the things that I found very interesting. Yeah, and that's a funny, uh, funny anecdote. And I, I would tell you, the first time I ever heard the words 401k, I was interviewing my dad for uh, a school assignment. We were to like write about our parents. And my dad was explaining to me his job and his benefits. And he's like, oh, I have a 401k. And I was like, does that mean you make $401,000 per year or something? Like, I don't understand what, what that is. Yet another term that, like, was never explained. Uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. <laughs> right? Um, and it's such a weird thing to call something, right? A 401k? Like, that's just the worst branding um, ever. Uh, but the, the history of the 401k is really funny. As you point out, uh, today there's more than 60 million Americans that have uh, 401ks, and there's literally more than $7 trillion in assets or 401k. So it's so funny that it was essentially invented on accident. So what happened uh, was in 1978, the IRS made some changes to the, to the tax code. Uh, and specifically, they added paragraph K to section 401 of the IRS uh, tax code. Uh, and what that, what that section did was it allowed um, allowed people to uh, invest in, in, in the stock market in a tax-advantaged way. Now, there was a, uh, a benefits attorney, and his name was Ted Banna, uh, Ted Benna, uh, or Banna uh, and he was reading through the tax changes and noticed that Section 401k, and he realized that the changes that was made uh, was vague enough to be applied to thrift uh, savings accounts. So what he discovered was that for the first time, because of Section 401, the new Section uh, K, the benefits of pre-tax profit sharing plans could now be invested in the stock market and combined with the employer match of thrift plans. So nobody ever went out and said, let's make this super account that diverse taxes and allows people to invest in the stock market and allows for the employer match. It was a complete accident that was discovered by Ted Vanna. Now, what's cool about Ted is he, once he realized this, he went to his own employer and convinced them to offer this as a benefit for the company that he was working for. So he became the first um, participant in, in 401ks 
and gradually more companies kind of learned about them and this was simultaneously at the point in time when companies were were trying to shift away from pension plans because they were so so expensive especially after the inflation of the 1970s that they just caught they just caught on uh, like like wildfire uh, and then they've just grown and they've grown and they've since become the number one way that Americans save for retirement but we all owe it to an attorney a benefits attorney manager named Ted Banna right and and the irs for adding that paragraph uh, uh, un- unintentionally as it were <laughs> yeah true uh, absolutely uh, so uh, th- this book it's it's full of uh, investing concepts it, uh, you know you you have like 60 chapters or something like that and each chapter takes a particular investing concept and sort of breaks it down in simple terms so out out of these 60 uh, chapters or 60 concepts in the book uh, can, can you just talk about one or two of your your favorites from from this uh, uh, from the book sure well i I'll, i'll just cover two of the the more uh, two of the topics that i i wrote to the chap the probe chapters about that really super confused me when i first started and i think they're 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 fairly common questions that people have um so the first uh the first one was just what the heck is the dow jones industrial average like why one why is it called the dow jones industrial average two why is it reported in the news and three what the heck does it even mean but if you go back to the invention of it i think everything makes sense so rewind the clock to the 1880s and the 1890s there were publicly traded companies back in 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 those days uh they were mostly banks and industrial uh companies well the editor the editor of the wall street journal his name was charles dow and he was reporting stock prices every day right his his newspaper was printing out stock prices on tables and he wanted to give his readers a way to kind of measure what happened in the stock market that day right he would, stocks went up some stocks went down but there was no way for him to like summarize what happened in the stock market that day so what he did was he uh, asked his friend uh, and business companion edward jones uh, for help so what the two of them ended up doing was they added up the stock prices of 12 industrial companies 12 of the biggest uh, and most well-known industrial companies of the day they added up the, sh- the stock price because it was very easy to do from the stock table and then they divided the total that they came up with by 12 now when you sum something and divide by the number of constituents that's called averaging so they called their inventions the dow jones industrial average and they started to report this number on a daily basis starting in 1896 and it was a, it was a very big hit with investors because suddenly they could tell if the stock market broadly speaking was going up or if it was going down by looking at this one number now that number has been reported every day since 1896 and business has evolved obviously greatly over the last 130 years so in 1928 they they changed the number of stocks that were in the Dow Jones Industrial Average uh from 12 to 30 
and that's how many stocks are in there today. And every couple of years, a few companies that are in there just become big and stodgy and no longer reflect what's happening with the modern economy. So they are removed from the Dow Jones and newer companies are added. So if you look at the Dow Jones today, companies like Apple and Disney and Home Depot are now put in there. Uh, but that's why the Dow Jones Industrial Average exists. And that's how it was, uh, how it came to be. Now, what's curious about that is we live in a capitalist society and companies saw what was happening with the Dow Jones Industrial Average and they noticed how popular it was becoming and they decided to create indices of their own in order to compete. Uh, one of the most popular ones uh, with investors today is the S&P 500. So S&P stand for Standard and Poor's. There was a company called Standard Statistics and it merged with a company called Poor's Publishing um, and creating the Standard and Poor's Company. And they created their index of their own. And in order to differentiate themselves from the Dow, they fixed a couple of the problems that investors have with the Dow. So rather than focusing on 30 companies like the Dow does, the S&P 500 focused on 500 companies. So it could give a more broad view of what's happening on the stock market. The other thing that it fixed was the Dow is computed using the stock price, the price of one share of stock for each of those 30 companies. It did so because in the 1890s, there weren't computers, so they needed an easy way to do it by hand uh, to calculate it. Uh, however, when the S&P 500 was launched in 1957, uh, the computing technology had advanced enough that they could use the market capitalization. Uh, of companies. So the size of the actual business, the value of the business versus the price of just a single uh, share. So because of those two things, 500 shares as well as cap, it's weighed by market cap, not by price. Um, many investors today uh, view the S&P 500 as kind of like the standard benchmark to look at to view what's happening uh, with the stock market over time. But that was one of my favorite chapters to kind of research because I always heard what the Dow Jones was. And obviously I have a vague sense of what it is, but I, I think once you understand the history of it and why it was created, it just makes complete sense why we have it today. Right, absolutely. So every little thing um, on, on Wall Street, there, there is a particular way of doing things. And when we just look at it today, it may seem like a strange way to do it. But if you go back uh, long enough, you sort of figure out that, that there are some decisions that, that made sense at the time and then uh, there was just convention that carried it forward uh, until today. Uh, so, so a lot of things are uh, kind of like that. And uh, this, uh, this whole, uh, how, how did the Dow come to be and how did the S&P 500 come to be? Uh, this was uh, like in, in, in your book. I, I don't think I've uh, seen the history of it. Uh, written in such a, such a clear way uh, anywhere else. So so I, I also really liked reading that particular chapter in in the book. Thanks. So another another uh, topic from the book. I'll cover this uh, quickly so we can get to Q and A. But one thing that always always perplexed me was I'd heard from people even before I really knew what the stock market was or I read it in books. Uh, the, the 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 U.S. stock market goes up ten percent. Per year, right? I'd heard that so many times. Oh, the long-term return of the S&P 500, the Dow Jones average, is 10% per year. And I would look at the charts of these stocks, and 
all I would see is one number, right? One number going up and down and squiggling over time. And I'd be like, where the heck is this 10% thing that they're, they're talking about, right? All I see is a number going from a low number to, to a high number. How does that equal uh, 10%? Well, one thing that only dawned on me years into investing was that the way that the returns are calculated, uh, returns are measured in percentages. And importantly, uh, the, 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 the weighting of those percentages resets on January 1st of every year. So it's like on January 1st of, of every year, uh, the, the price is, is, is measured. And then at the end of the year, the other price is measured. And the percent change uh, over the course of that year is what's recorded as the gain. And then for the following year, that new price, the higher price, is then used as the denominator to calculate the future price. And it was like, once I understood that, I was like, oh, that's how the, the market is measured in percentage movements. It's because it resets on January 1st every year, which is just another such a simple concept, but was never explained. Uh, it was never explained to me. Uh, so that's something I tried to make painfully obvious because that was something that just super confused me when I first started investing. Right. Absolutely. So um, it's uh, there are these concepts in in the market and if, if you don't quite have a feel for uh, how they are computed uh, how, how the calculations behind them work then uh, that that leaves a, a lot of questions in your mind and you're very perplexed um, so, so one, one one thing I've, I've seen a lot of people uh, do is um, if, if you have a stock it, it goes up 20 percent and then it goes down 20 percent that's not a wash that's actually a loss. <laughs> it goes up 20% from a low level and reaches a high level, but then the subsequent fall is measured from the high level, not from the low level. So a 20% gain followed by a 20% loss doesn't leave you where you started. It actually leaves you lower <laughs> than where you started and, and th things like that. Right. Exactly. The, 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 that's it's such an important point. You know, the, da the, the news uh, is very common for them to say the Dow went up 500 points today or whatever but that's just that's just a fact what really matters is the percent change right so if the dow goes up 500 points but that is you know one percent that one percent is what matters it's not necessarily the the the, the 500 uh, points so again just just things like that that confused me uh when i first started investing i just wanted to make crystal clear for for new investors absolutely and and i think the book uh, achieves that goal uh, quite admirably in, in large part. Uh, so th thank you so much for creating this. Thank you for the kind words. Sure. Uh, so so uh, we, we should now probably start taking questions from, from folks. So um, guys, if you have uh, questions for, uh, for Brian or for me, uh, just uh, now is a great time to start asking them. Okay, so the, the first question is from Akshay. Hello, can you hear me? Uh, yes. yes. Yeah, sorry, I, I think I, my audio was not set for the app. Uh, first of all, congratulations, Brian, uh, for this book. And uh, I've been following you for, for the last one year or so now. 
and your channel as well. And you're, you're doing a fantastic job with uh, Brian Stofel and absolutely uh, educating us in this journey. Thanks a lot for that. Uh, Brian, my question. I'm, I'm sorry our timing is, uh, I'm sorry our timing is so rotten. <laughs> we started the channel pretty much at the peak of the market. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, but that, that's fine. We, I, I, I didn't, I didn't go and buy the stock straight away, so that is, so that's why I'm still safe. <laughs> Thanks. Yes. Uh, so, uh, uh, Brian, uh, what confuses me, to be honest, is uh, in this investing journey because I've been investing through through ETFs and mutual funds for the last like 13, 14 years now. But when when it comes to selecting a individual stock. Uh, it's it's a completely different game. So, uh, to be honest, whatever is cheap may not be good. Whatever is good and seems pricey may not be pricey. And that sort of stuff really confuses me. So, have you covered that in your book? So, to, to, to your point, yeah, that, that was the absolute, that's one of the hardest lessons that I've had to learn as an investor in individual stocks you know you read all the classic books by by buffett and um, graham and dodd and they always talk about all intelligent investing is value investing right period uh case closed what your goal is with investing is to buy a dollar's worth of value for 80 cents and roughly sell it when it gets to a dollar or or so so when i read that it just immediately clicked with me on a fundamental level, because that's how I buy things in real life, right? I don't go to the grocery yeah. store and think, oh, look, strawberries are twice as expensive as they were last week. Let's buy a bunch. Uh, I think, oh, look, strawberries are on sale. Let's let's buy them uh, this week. But that is that's such a natural thing to want to take over and apply to the investing world. Uh, however, that's not how stocks uh, stocks work. And I know this because I've 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 just done this. Uh, one one of the first strategies that I tried with investing was just finding the cheapest stocks that I could find. So I'd look for very low PE ratios, or I'd look for very high dividend yields, or very low price to book ratios. And one 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 lesson that I that I learned is I vividly remember the company that I was working for in 2006. Um, we just became customers of a new software company called Salesforce.com, and I was just immediately taken with the software, how useful it was, how impactful it was. It blew away the other vendors that we used before, and I was like, wow, like. Our company just like so quickly became completely dependent on this software. So I was like, I wonder if this company is publicly traded. Well, it was. And I pulled up the stock price and I was like, the PE ratio is 100. <laughs> Pass. And end of discussion, right? The PE ratio is 100. It, it's, it's impossible to buy this stock. And you can probably guess what's happened to that stock uh, since then. It's up. I don't even know how many thousands of percent uh, since since um, <laughs> since I say that. Uh, uh, conversely, I've also bought stocks that had dividend yields of five, ten, fifteen uh, percent, and those stocks then went on to go down. They went down, mm. which was like, why is that happening? Well, the underlying business behind the company is heading in the wrong direction, right? If a company is destined to substantially grow its revenue and profits over long periods of time, you can do very well as an investor, even if you pay a high valuation at the start, 
And if a company's profits are destined for zero, you will do very poorly as an investor, even if you pay a low valuation. Uh, so obviously there's a ton of nuance in between those two uh, extremes. Broadly speaking, your goal if you're buying individual uh, stocks is to buy great companies at at relatively uh, good good prices and hold them for long uh, periods of time, or at least that's my strategy. But yeah, believe me, I struggle mightily with that uh, exact concept that you're wrestling with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Brian. This is what I'm struggling with right now. I, I, I and and I and, and have you have you also covered like if you have a lot of cash on hand, how how you can sit for the right opportunity? Because that's also I'm struggling with right now. Yeah, so so to answer your questions, this book was was deliberately not designed to go into individual stock investing uh, at all. Um, I'm a huge proponent of index funds, and I think for the vast majority of 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 people of uh, people, there's no need to invest in individual stocks. I, I think you if you're very interested in learning and reading through 10Ks and that kind of thing, then you should be interested in individual stocks. But most people just have no interest uh, in that. So the book was written for the 98% of people that will never or should never own individual uh, stocks. Um, uh, themselves. Uh, so I hope that answers that question. Wait, most the, people oh, don't like to dive into 10Ks. No, I know. They're, they're weird, aren't they? <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's um, true. That's true. Yeah. To answer your question about the, the capital allocation, I have a bunch of cash now. Um, uh, I could tell you what the, the, the statistics and, and the data says you should do, and then I, should, I can give you some uh, advice for emotionally uh, decisions. So the data says if you have capital, put it in the market, period, right? That The data says mm-hmm. the, the math is on your side that you, as soon as you have capital, put it in the market, um, and the odds are good that that will be the right decision for maximizing uh, your future wealth. Of course, if you have a big pile of cash and it can be paralyzing to be like, well, what if I put it in and then the market falls 10%, 20%, 30%? I'll feel like an idiot uh, for, for investing it all up front. But let's just get out that other way. The math says put it all in right away. That's not what I would do. Um, if I had a bunch of cash that I wanted to be put into the market, what I would do is I would create a little table for myself and I would say, uh, let's just make it easy and say I had uh, $12,000 and I want to put that in the market over the next year. So I would say, okay, every month, January, uh, the first of the month, I'm going to put $1,000 into the market, regardless of what the price is, right? And then I would, that that's the schedule out for the next month. Um, so option A is just follow that schedule, like just dollar cost average into the market. And in that case, you're rooting for the stock market to go down. Uh, option B is that plus a little bit extra to say, I'm going to put $1,000 into the market on the first of the month. However, if the stock market declines by 5% between uh, the, the first uh, payment, I'm going to accelerate the next uh, payment. So I'm going to put that second payment in uh, early. And if it declines another 5%, I'm going to put the next one in uh, early. So that way you're buying uh, lower and, and lower if you get intra-month uh, declines in the stock price. And if the stock market is flat or goes up, you just stick to the schedule. So that's one way to do it slightly more intelligently and slightly more opportunistically. But the good news is there's no wrong way to do it. There's just what is the most psychologically satisfying 
to, to you and which method was, is going to maximize your chances of getting the money in the market while minimizing the emotions that you'll have to go through. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Brian, that, that uh, I, I'm on the same lines as well. I just have to control my emotions not to buy uh, individual stocks when I can go for, for ETFs. That's a better route for me as well, I think. Well, no, no, know thyself, but there's also, there's also, you know, it's a spectrum, right? There's nothing wrong, in my opinion, with keeping 90% of your capital in ETFs and 10% in individual stocks that idea. really interest you, right? Because then yep. if, if they go to zero, well, 90% of your capital is still doing what it needs to do. Fantastic. Yeah, that, that's, that's a very good idea. Yep. Whatever you do, I, I just can't recommend enough writing down rules for yourself, like writing down a yep. policy statement for yourself when you're calm, when you're thinking clearly, and then following the damn rules that you write for yourself. <laughs> yep, yep, that's that's a great idea. I, I also have a, a kind of a strategy, like if if market goes down, I'm I'm going to buy double of what I'm buying now. So it's on the similar lines of what you. Excellent. Say. Yeah. Excellent. So let's see. Yep. Thank you, Brian. Thanks a lot. Thank for you. That. Absolutely. Uh, the, the next caller uh, is uh, Zach. Hey, Zach. Hey, Ten hey Tenke. Hey, Brian. Uh, great show. Um, I, Brian, I have a little bit of a unique question that's, that's probably unique as in unique to you and not uh, in, in general. Um, it's been striking for me hearing about, you know, your initial stages, just kind of going from zero to one, learning about investing. And obviously there's a steep learning curve there, but you learn a lot quickly and it's kind of simple to learn, you know, knowing from when something goes up 20%, down 20%, you're, you're actually, you're worse off. Um, but as you've become more refined and more or less an expert in the space, how has your learning about investing and, and uh, uh, money managing how has that changed or, or has it changed at all? And, and what, and what have you done to make sure you're still learning and, and improving if, if you are, or, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pause there. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for the great question, uh, Zach. I mean, that's, to be honest, that's one of my favorite things about investing. Um, it's, it's like an infinite game, right? The, the rules are constantly uh, shifting. They're constantly evolving, right? If you look at securities analysis, when it first was written in, I don't even know what year, the 1930s, 1940s, right? The rules that Ben Graham uh, wrote for himself. 1934, like, I believe. There you go. Okay. It was like buy companies only when they're trading at a 25% discount to their working capital. It's like, uh, what? Like th those companies don't exist uh, uh, anymore. Uh, other periods of time, uh, value investing worked really well. Other periods of time, growth investing uh, worked really well. And just in the last, you know, 15 years that I've been uh, in investing, growth investing has been the place to be, right? Large cap growth stocks has been the place to be. And value investing has just been a horrible place uh, to be. But it looks like the tide is turning uh, uh, on that now. But that's both a frustrating thing about investing because just when you think you have quote unquote it figured out the rules kind of change uh, uh under you but i i plan on learning about investing essentially for the rest of my life just because i think it's like one of the most fun mental activities uh that you can do but as far as money management one of my one of the ways that my my mindset has has shifted over the last couple of years um several years ago i made the decision to pay off my mortgage 
And um, I did so by selling some uh, some of my equities uh, to do so. Now, mathematically, that was an incredibly dumb, uh, incredibly dumb d decision, right? Uh, the returns that I was earning on my equities was far higher than the interest rate that I was earning on my mortgage. And when you factor in inflation, when you factor in uh, the tax uh, benefits of holding a mortgage, it just makes no mathematical sense at all uh, to do what I did. In fact, the math says do the opposite. Go try and leverage your house even more and put that money uh, in, in the market. But one of the ways that my mindset has changed uh, dramatically in that fashion is uh, I'm a huge fan of keeping your finances, your personal finances, hyper, uh, hyper conservative, right? Eliminating all of your debt, keeping up a, a, an unreasonable or a, a huge amount of, uh, of cash and doing so um, essentially frees up my mind from, from, from financial worries, from anything that can happen in the markets affecting my day-to-day -day life. And by doing so, I think that builds in the mental capacity that I have to withstand huge amounts of volatility in the market, right? My portfolio is down, I don't even know how much right now, 20%, 25%, 30%. I, I don't even know uh, what it is, but it's down. It's down huge. If I was also, uh, if I also had a ton of debt and a huge uh, and like uh, bill, uh, you know, bills that were really hard to pay and like I was living paycheck to paycheck, the stress that I would be going through right now would be so much higher uh, than, than it currently than it currently is because my personal finances are are so conservative. So uh, that's again what, one way that my mindset has shifted. I thought that I was going to keep a mortgage forever because the math clearly says uh, to do so. But it's really about finding out that, well, what's, what's the point of money in the first place? Why are we investing uh, in the first place? The answer is to give ourselves a better life, right? To remove finances as an obstacle from living the best life uh, that we can. So when I started to view money and finances through that uh, perspective, just paying off my mortgage, paying off all my debt just made so much more sense because it was like, well, would my life get better if I was debt free? Answer, yes, therefore do it. Um, so that's one way that my mindset has, has evolved. No, th thanks. That, and and that, that relates, I think, in part to what you're talking about in the last question, if you have a, a large sum of capital, the, the math says to put it in the market right away. But it seems like your advice there and your advice here is similar in that managing the emotional or, or more psychological component of this, because that can't necessarily always be quantified, but it definitely has an impact in, in your decisions and just overall well-being. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, all, all the benefits of compounding, right, uh, all, all the wonderful things about investing in the market and compounding for a long period of time, those disappear completely disappear if you sell at the worst possible time. And the most tempted time that you will want to sell is at the worst possible time, right? It, it, it's, it's so easy, for, especially if you're a new investor, to look back at the declines of the recent past, right? Of the, the great, uh, of the COVID, of the great recession, of the 2020s, uh, of, excuse me, of the uh, 2000.com. It's so easy for us to look backwards at those periods when stocks are falling and say now, oh, obviously a great buying period. Look at that. Look at that. Prices were, were falling and then look what happens next. When you are living through those periods day by day, uh, hour by hour, and you see prices fall, prices fall, when you see businesses going under and, and the unemployment rate going up and wars happening or whatever it is, it just feels completely 
different than it does in an academic uh, sense. Uh, so dealing with dealing with downturns uh, emotionally and truly being able to hand them and even think opportunistic about them is so easy to say, but it is damn hard. It is damn hard to do. Um, so yeah, anything that I can do to optimize my life to make sure that I can do something positive for myself, or at the very at the very least, have, take no action at all when my portfolio is declining. Uh, I, I think that's a worthwhile pursuit to set myself up to be in that position. Thanks, Brian. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so the the next caller is uh, Andy. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Andy, yes, we can. Yeah, so uh, first of all, Brian, I really want to thank you for all your tweets. Uh, both me and my daughter, we have learned a lot from your tweets. And uh, I can't even, uh, you can't even imagine how much those tweets have helped me personally. <laughs> so thanks, thanks a lot for that. Wow, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, the question that I had, was uh, your new book will it be a good gift for a 12 year old daughter uh, i don't want to overwhelm her with all the nitty gritty details but at the same time i want to make sure that she can have a good simple book to start learning about all these different concepts and fundamentals of investing so I think that's going to depend on the nature of the 12-year-old. But I can tell you, um, uh, I can tell you in general. Uh, I'm going to have some feedback. I don't know if you can mute yourself. Um, uh, in general, I wrote this book so that I could essentially give it to my mom and have my mom understand the concepts. Now, my mom, just so people are understand, has no interest in money or finance or the stock market at all. Uh, she is she is someone that's that's quite fearful of, of investing because she was never taught how to do it. And I was like, how could I explain the concepts that I know uh, to her about what a stock is, why it goes up and down, why it has why it has value? And how can I do it in as simple and as compelling way as possible? Uh, and Tenkai Tenkai teed this up at the top, but uh, tr Twitter is such wonderful training ground for figuring out how to get concepts across in as simple of a manner as possible. I and mean, if you look at like what tweets go end up going viral, they're 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 the shortest tweets possible. They contain the most information, maybe in an image or a graphic, and it's just such great training for how can I get this concept across with saying the fewest possible uh, words. And that's the mindset that I approached the book with. Uh, I was telling Ted before, if I could have deleted words from this book, I would have. Like, I, I, I hate reading dense books. I like books that are easy to read. Some of my favorite fiction books that I've ever read are like Dan Brown's books, like The Da Vinci Code, um, and uh, geez, I can't even think of the other ones at this one, a Angels and Demons. And one thing I loved about that book is all the chapters were like two, three pages long so that you feel like you're making progress. Well, that's why I wrote this. Uh, the longest chapter, I think, is four pages long. And if I could have made it shorter, uh, I, I would have. So I don't know a 12-year-old would enjoy reading this book, um, but if she... If, if, 
if she could resonate with the concepts. Like I, I wrote it to be as easy to read as possible. Uh, so I think there's a chance. Thank you very much, Brian. The yeah. other question I had was- So Brian, uh, uh, just one second. I think that's the wrong answer. The right answer is yes. It's a great <laughs> gift for a 12 year old. Uh, <laughs> and the reason is, uh, let's just think of it as a bread. So uh, what, what's the worst that can happen? You, you get the 12 year old this book and the 12 year old is not interested at this stage. You, you don't lose anything. Uh, you, you, but, but what if the 12 year old develops an interest in finance and investing uh, as a result of this? See Warren Buffett, he bought his first talk when, when he was 11. And if the 12 year old reads this book and it's wonderfully written and develops an interest in finance and investing, it could dramatically change uh, their life, right? Uh, so so uh, to me, uh, look at the upside potential and look at the downside. Uh, it's, it's sort of a no-brainer. So uh, <laughs> th th those are my two cents on this. Thank you. Uh, the other question I had was, uh, I wanted to understand your thought process, Brian, on capital allocation and how you look at it, right, when you're looking at different stocks, if you can talk a little about on capital allocation, you mean, uh, are you talking about my like my personal portfolio composition versus like stocks, bonds, cash, that kind of thing? Uh, like, how do you, what percentage you have in ETF and what do you have in uh, growth stock and all, something along those? Oh, okay. Um, so I, I try and keep my, um, uh, as I said, my, my personal finance is super conservative, right? So we covered, we covered that. Um, all my retirement stuff, I just have on autopilot. I don't want to think about it, right? It's just all dumping into uh, index funds uh, every month on, on, on autopilot there. Uh, and everything else goes into my, my individual uh, brokerage account, which is 100% filled with, uh, with stocks, the vast majority of which are, are growth stocks that I think are uh, the high, highest quality businesses that, that, uh, that I could find. Um, so that is broadly speaking, my investing, uh, how my, my, my personal capital is allocated. And I just look for one of my favorite things to do is, is read about and learn about companies, think through business models, uh, judge management teams and make small tactical bets on companies that have asymmetric risk reward opportunities, right? If I'm, if I'm right about this business, I could make 10, 50, 100 X on, on my capital. If I'm wrong about this business, uh, I get a tax write-off and a lesson, right? So that's the way that I deploy my capital. And I've made every mistake that you can make uh, in, in investing. I've, 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 I've over leveraged myself. I've used options. Um, uh, and I've bet big on companies that ended up that I thought were bulletproof. Spoiler, they weren't. Um, and they went down. But uh, overall, I'm very happy with how my portfolio is is allocated. And I basically trickle into my favorite investment ideas over a period of 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 years. And the best companies, the ones that perform the best on the market, they grow and grow and grow and make up a larger and larger percentage of my portfolio. The ones that are losers uh, shrink and shrink and shrink and essentially become uh, irrelevant. So my portfolio today is is concentrated in the best performing stocks and the best companies uh, that that I've I've found and owned. And the, the the worst performing ones are essentially irrelevant small percentage of my portfolio. So that's my current uh, investing 
a style. It, I don't claim that it's perfect or best, but it's the best version that I've found so far that uh, works for me. Brian, one last question. In addition to your book, what other book, podcast, or blogs you would recommend? Just just one. Um, uh, there's a book. Yeah, uh, one book. Jeez, um, I really like this book by uh, the the people that that published my my book. It's called Choose, Choose Fi. Uh, they are the podcast. Um, that uh, that I connected with and, and resonate with deeply. The FI stands for Financial Independence, and that that podcast has hundreds of episodes with authors, bloggers, experts, and all things about how to optimize your life to maximize your chances of reaching financial independence as early uh, as possible. And I think it's an incredibly inspirational uh, podcast and concept. So that's one that I absolutely love. Perfect. Uh, so, so the next question uh, uh, or the next caller is uh, Vinod, who, who's a regular caller on the show. Hey, Vinod. Hey, Tilke. Hope you can hear me. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Thanks. First of all, thanks for having this special show and also inviting Brian, who's a, a very good uh, creator and uh, uh, financial uh, teacher. I really like all his tweets and uh, the small graphics he shares. And also recently I started watching his YouTube channel as well. Thanks for doing all these, uh, Brian. Uh, welcome to this uh, uh, session as well. Um, uh, my question is basically on uh, uh, what's being covered in the in the book. Uh, if you can give a quick uh, teaser on the book. I know you talked about various aspects. Uh, is it towards uh, you know, personal finance or towards fundamental analysis or some something really very, uh, because you also touched upon it as, most of the interesting is uh, to keep it very simple, like uh, 90, 95% of the people just to index, right? So I just want to keen to understand the uh, contents of the book, what's being covered, and also what will make you happy if uh, uh, readers, uh, after reading your book, shares certain feedbacks or reviews. What will make you happy? Uh, these these are the two things I would like to ask. Thanks. Sir, well, thank you for the thank you for the question and for. Um, following me across the social channels. I, I super, uh, super appreciate it. Um, so the book is specifically about investing in the stock market. Uh, that's what the book was, was written about. It was designed to explain all of the most important, most basic concepts about what the stock market is, why it goes up and down, and why it's been historically a wonderful place to keep capital. Like what are the underlying fundamental growth drivers that keep the stock market going up over time, which is, by the way, the, the number one question that I had about investing when I first started. How is there this thing called the stock market that defies gravity, right? It, it just keeps going up and up and up and up and up and up and it keeps doing that essentially, quote unquote, forever. What is that? What is the thing that makes that that to, to happen? So that's the that was the fundamental thing that uh, drove the uh, creation of the book. So I have a little bit about personal finance in here. I have a little bit about how to to invest, right? Open a brokerage account, a dollar cost average in over long periods of time. You'll be that's the best way to do it. But the, the book is, is primarily about the why of the stock market and the how it works more so than um, anything else. As for 
what do I want the reception uh, to be? So I, I didn't write this book because I wanted to, I thought it was going to be a big money maker or, or anything like that. In fact, if you look at um, books in general, uh, most the average book in its entire life sells 1,000 1,000 copies, and this blew my mind. There's literally over a thousand books that are published every single day. So the the competition in the book world is absolutely um, uh, massive. Um, and runaway hits like Atomic Habits and the Psychology of Money in recent years are are one-off uh, flukes. So I have no expectations of hitting anywhere near that level uh, of success. But uh, I I just wanted this book to exist so that some people could pick it up and kind of have it resonate with them and, and figure it out. So if it exists in the world and some people occasionally uh, send me a message on Twitter saying, I read the book and liked it, like that would be success to me. Perfect. Thank you. Much appreciated and wish you a great success uh, for your book release. Thank you. Thanks so much. So I just want to add one, one thing to that answer. So uh, in one of the first few pages of the book, Brian says, uh, the stock market is the greatest wealth creation machine of all time. And I would say that the the rest of the book uh, goes on to explain exactly why that is. So why is the stock market the greatest wealth creation machine? What is it about businesses, how they work, how they grow earnings over time, how they can reinvest profits, things like that. How all those different things, inflation, productivity, improvements, or all that, how, how does it come together to make the stock market this greatest wealth creation machine? So that's what the book is about. The bulk of the book is about the why, as Brian said. Uh, but the book also has a section about how individuals, individual investors, ordinary people can take advantage of the stock market to build uh, life-changing amounts of wealth for themselves. So what are some of the common mistakes to avoid? And uh, how do you get started? Uh, how, how do you find a good broker or something like that? Uh, how do you settle on a dollar cost averaging strategy? Some of these practical um, um, concerns, uh, there are also chapters devoted to these kinds of concerns. So it's not a book only about the why, it also tells you a little bit of the how. Uh, to take advantage of this greatest wealth creation machine. So it includes aspects of both. Thanks. Thanks, Trinke. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. For the let let me forward. interject. Let me interject. Oh, thank you. Sorry to interrupt you. I was just saying, let me, let me interject one more thing there. When, when I was researching this book uh, and writing this book, uh, one of the things that I did was I reached out to my local, a local group of friends and I kind of like tested it on them as I was going to make sure the concepts were easy to understand and explained. And I talked to many of my friends uh, about how they invest. And so many of them said that they invest with a financial advisor um, that I was like, I guess I need a whole section in here on financial advisors because so many of them had no clue about how the stock market is. And, and, and check this out. I was like, well, how does your financial advisor get paid? And they were like, I don't know. Like, I can't tell you how, how common that is that like you're working with this person. They're managing your money. You have no idea how to evaluate them. You have no idea how they get paid. Doesn't that seem weird uh, to you? Um, so initially, I was just going to do a chapter 
on financial advisors, but after kind of getting that feedback from, from many people, I ended up putting a whole section in there about financial advisors and kind of like the pitfalls of working with them and how to, how to judge them and stuff. So I guess it is a little bit more technical um, than I was uh, initially playing it up to be. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Much appreciated. Absolutely. And that, that is one of my favorite uh, chapters in the book. Well, all the chapters are great, but th- this is one of uh, my favorite chapters. So in, in the chapter, Brian says one particular thing which really resonated with me, which is that uh, if your financial advisor throws around a lot of jargon and after talking to your financial advisor, if you're confused, uh, then that's not a financial advisor you want to be working with. So financial advisors should make uh, concepts easy for their clients to understand, uh, not difficult. Those who make the concept difficult, those who try to confuse you by throwing jargon at you and things like that, uh, there's a very good chance that they are not the financial advisor that you want. And this really, this point from the book really resonated with me. Thank you, Trinke. Sure. So, so the, the next caller is uh, Giri. Hi. Um, hi, Tenke and uh, Brian. Thank you so much for you know, uh, spreading uh, uh, financial knowledge to the you know, individuals and uh, no, retail investors. I really thank you. And especially for 10K, uh, the equations and uh, the explanation about each mathematical uh, equations and uh, related to uh, uh, the meaning, that is phenomenal. So I, I love your uh, tweets, especially for the concept. We are taking a simple concept. You are explaining very nicely. It was fantastic. I loved those things. Then, uh, Priyan, that's so I, kind of you to say thank you. That's very good. So, I read in uh, when I was in uh, high school, <laughs> then when I start reading, oh, oh, this is the meaning now. I'm interrelating with uh, no finance, it is really, really fantastic, especially one is um, uh, arithmetic uh, um, uh, average and geometric average, those are the certain fundamental things we learned uh, when I was. Uh, no, high school, but when I don't know real meaning at that time. Now, when I look at finance and these mathematical two things uh, combining, then it gives a lot of uh, meaning. So that is very fantastic. You are doing an excellent job in that. And also you wrote something like, you know, options are related to call options and put options. That was fantastic. Right. It Thank is you very so fantastic. Uh, and beyond then, I uh, know I have been following uh, you in the Twitter and also I follow your um, YouTube. So fantastic. You are giving, giving a lot of knowledge to the entire retail community. So I really thank you for that. And my question uh, before going to that, you know, if you don't mind, can you reveal your name? Is it uh, a 10K? I don't know what is 10K means. On this side. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, 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 I would like to mind, reveal my name. Unfortunately, uh, the the employer that I work for has some uh, fairly strict social media policies. Uh, It's not like they ask me to be anonymous, but it's much easier to uh, abide by all these rules if I stay anonymous. Oh, that's fine. That is, uh, I am absolutely fine. But basically, you are an engineer and also you are giving so much 
you learn so much on finance and giving the way you are you know uh, it's like a normal financial expert that is that was fantastic actually and abrian so uh, my question for you uh, especially for valuation uh, related to valuation <clears throat> when you are looking at the high growth uh, stocks so always we will see some operating margins and earnings and free cash flow always negative for the last one you know one year or two year but the top line is growing like you know uh, no 80% or 70% and 900% but how do you evaluate whether this is the right price to buy or not even if it is a business is good uh, generally high growth stocks are very expensive so how do you evaluate how do you find but we can't find we can't use the dcf methodology or you can dividend methodology we can't use anything to find whether it is uh, undervalued or fair value or uh, no or we uh, are value so how do you uh, evaluate uh, evaluate uh, the no, the price of the stock means the business obviously so uh, that that is my question Sure. That's a thank very so, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for the kind words. So that's a very tricky question to answer. Uh, yeah, to your point, many, <laughs> so I'm many glad companies... that Brian is here to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so I, I will say again, this is something that really confused me uh, early on. Uh, especially, uh, I think one of the most helpful graphics I've ever created kind of shows the the business life cycle um and how how a company goes from being uh in the r&d stage or like you know business formation all the way through to being you know a, a company that is um eventually bankrupt uh out of business but you have to think through the revenue and the profit cycle um of that business so if a company is in high growth mode like the one that you just uh, mentioned it's very common for companies that are growing their top line extremely fast uh to be plowing all available resources and then some back into the business to hire more uh engineers uh to roll out the product product in new markets to hire, go with customer service to hire sales people um etc and that in many cases is the right thing to do but to your point valuing those companies is just so damn hard because there's no earnings there's no free cash flow uh to look at so my favorite metric when it works is the price to earnings ratio right it's just so simple it's like i'm paying a multiple of profits for this company uh end of story that just makes such sense to me right you're buying you're buying a future profit stream so i love it when the price to earnings ratio works well think through what the price to earnings ratio uh represents that right represents the value of the business the price to the earnings the profits as as determined from the the income statement now if there are no earnings uh one thing that i you're forced to do if you're coming up with a valuation metric is to move higher up on the income statement right that's why some companies call out ebitda or adjusted ebitda which is uh, earnings before interest taxes depreciations and amortization it's a it's a, it's a not a metric i love but it's higher than the the profit ratio and some companies will give you that number to work off of if they're profitable on an, an ebitda uh basis if that doesn't work go up one stage higher uh go to the price to to to, to gross profit so gross profit is the the val- the sales of that company minus the cost to produce those sales and that is a number that shows you how much kind of economic profit uh, that company could be producing if you ignore all of the costs of the business 
Obviously, that's not ideal because those costs will already be there, but it is something that you can uh, can look at. If that doesn't work, go one step higher to the price to sales ratio, right? How much am I paying for this business compared to the sales uh, of the company? But you also have to think through the gross margin profile uh, of a company, right? If one company is growing 100% per year and it has an 80% gross margin, so 80 cents of a, of a dollar in sales get turned into gross profit, well, that's more attractive than a company that has a 20% gross margin where only 20 cents of that dollar in sales get turned into uh, to gross profit. So those are the kind of things I think through if the price to earnings ratio or the price to free cash flow are not available uh, to me. And you can tell that Companies like that are in that stage tend to be highly, highly valued and also highly uh, volatile. But if a company can grow its top line at a 70, 80, 50% plus rate for like five or 10 years, uh, which is really, really hard to do, uh, but some companies historically have been able uh, to do that. Uh, if, if, if you buy a company and it grows its top line um, by a factor of 10 over the next 10 years, you'll probably do really well as an investor, even if you pay a very high valuation upstart. So one way that I think about that is rather than looking at the valuation, I'll look at the market cap uh, of, of the company. I'll just ask myself, is it possible that this company's market cap could go back by a factor of 10? So if I find a high growth company with high margins, insider ownership, everything I like about the business, and it's valued at $1 billion, and I say to myself, if this thesis works out, could this be a $10 billion company uh, someday? I'm going to ignore the valuation or do my best to ignore the valuation because I think that that company, if it works out, could go up 10 times in value. <clears throat> Conversely, if a company's in high growth mode and it's currently worth $100 billion, like I'll have to ask myself, do I think this is a trillion dollar idea? Do I, do I think the company will be worth a trillion dollars to 10x my investment today? Very, very, very few companies are worth a trillion dollars. In fact, they didn't exist at all, what, like four years ago, five years five years ago. Um, so I'm going to be much more valuation sensitive with a company that has a very, very large market cap than I will with a very, very small one. But those are just some guide rails that I use for myself when I'm thinking through that tough, that tough equation. But if you like a company and the business is executing and it's priced for extreme growth, um, I would just slowly ease myself into it and try to buy at better and better valuations over time and just hope that the company continues to execute and execute and execute. And if you can just find a few companies that really do that well uh, in your investing career, uh, they should produce such high returns uh, for you that all the strikeouts that you do uh, buying ones that are fake high growth companies uh, will become irrelevant. Thank you so much, Brian. Yeah, that, uh, that helps me. Thank you so much. So I, I have a little bit to add to that answer. Mm -hmm. um, so w one of the important things is, uh, yes, as Brian said, as you go further uh, up uh, in the income statement, you, you have sales and then you have uh, um, EBITDA or whatever, uh, well, sales and then gross profits and then EBITDA and then uh, net income, right? Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. uh, the, the idea is that a lot of modern businesses that are growing very quickly, uh, they are investing through the income statement instead of the balance sheet. So traditionally, what businesses used to do 
is they used to be buying these assets and factories and things like that. And those assets would go on the balance sheet and only a small fraction of those assets would be treated as expenses. That is the depreciation. Um, but these days, companies are investing a lot of money into initiatives like R&D uh, and sales and marketing and things like that. These things don't go on the balance sheet at all. Uh, the entire uh, expense for sales and marketing and R&D is taken off right at the top um, in, in the income statement itself. So what happens is uh, that has the effect of artificially lowering reported earnings. So just because a company reports uh, no net income or something like that uh, doesn't mean that reflects the true economics of what's going on. It's just that this company may be investing a lot of money into R&D and sales and marketing, but all of that is not treated as an investment. It's treated as an expense. And that's not exactly the right way to treat it, but the because of the accounting rules, that's the way it's being treated. So one way to sort of analyze these these kinds of businesses is to think about what the steady state of the business is going to be, say, several, several years down the line. So uh, imagine that this business uh, has managed to grow and so on, and uh, it's now reached what is called a, a steady state. Now, in that steady state, uh, how much will they be earning and what will the margins look like and will they be spending as much in sales and marketing and R&D. So if a company is trying to invest a lot and develop new products and so on, it will spend a lot in R&D. But that's not going to be how the steady state works. At steady state, it may spend much lower amounts on R&D and sales and marketing and things like that. So think about what the future steady state of the company is going to look like. Uh, and then uh, try to see whether that future, how, how long is that future going to take? Uh, first of all, is that future predictable to within a reasonable degree of accuracy? How long is that future going to take? What are the steady state economics going to look like in the future? And how much are you willing to pay for those economics today? Uh, if that equation makes sense, the price to value equation, uh, then this may be a good candidate for investing. But if that equation doesn't make sense, uh, if you think that uh, even in steady state, this company is just going to keep blowing a lot of money on sales and marketing and things like that, they're never going to be profitable, um, then uh, the, those investments may be best avoided. So that that, that is my <clears throat> two cents on, on this particular question. How do you, uh, one more question. So, so how do you uh, now find out whether it is steady state or not based on uh, the uh, based on that uh, gross profit after that how the money they are spending on r and d and uh, sales and sales and marketing and uh, other expenses how they are spending year by year so studying that one we can uh, come come to the conclusion that it is the going to steady state or not or it is uh, going up right. or down something like that so, so um you, you have a company and let, let's say the company is spending uh, a lot of money on uh, say sales and marketing, run, running a bunch of ads to acquire new customers or some, something like that. Now, uh, the question to ask is, uh, if, if, you, if you spend an ad uh, on, on an ad and uh, let's say it costs you $100 to acquire a customer today, then over the life of this customer, how long is this customer going to be with you? What, what is the uh, churn of this customer? And uh, how much profit can you make from this customer 
for however long this customer is with you. So if, if this customer is with the company for the next five years or something like that, and every year uh, the company is able to make $50 of profit of this customer, then uh, you spend $100 upfront to acquire this customer. But then over the next five years, uh, you collect $250, right? $50 per year for five years uh, from yes. this customer. So uh, in, in steady state, uh, assuming that you have all the customers you need, and you won't be spending any more uh, money on marketing to acquire new customers. So then uh, that $100 of expense, which was recorded, uh, is no longer going to be an expense in steady state. So uh, in, in steady state, you have to sort of um, uh, kind of calculate um, how much does the company need to spend in order to maintain its current earnings, not necessarily to grow its earnings, but just to maintain their current level. So, for example, the company may spend just enough on sales and marketing to uh, offset the churn. So uh, if, if, say, 5% of customers churn every year or something like that, uh, the, the company may spend uh, just enough on sales and marketing just to get new customers to offset that churn. So in, in that kind of situation, uh, how will the updated sales and marketing expenses look like in, in the future? Now, these are, of course, hard questions to answer for any any given business. And there are some businesses that provide you with much more disclosure than other businesses and so on. But the, the point is, if you don't have a feel for the long-term economics of this business, uh, then uh, you, you don't really understand the business enough to be able to uh, invest in it, right? So, so that, that, that is the whole idea. Oh, those are the good uh, you know, insights. Thank you so much. That helps me, you know, drill through that, you know, some of the concepts. Uh, Absolutely. No? So if you want uh, to learn more about this, there is this mm -hmm. wonderful paper written by Professor Michael Mauberson. Uh, it's called One Job. Uh, the one job of any investor is to understand sort of the long-term economics of a business. And when a business is doing investing through the income statement instead of the balance sheet and things like that, uh, what kinds of adjustments do you have to make to these financial statements so that uh, they represent economic reality rather than just some accounting convention? Oh, thank you so much. I follow Michael Mobison also on Twitter. So, yeah, uh, thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. So uh, it looks like we don't have uh, any more callers. So I just want to thank Brian once again. This was a lovely session and uh, thank you for writing such a wonderful book and thank you for uh, so patiently uh, answering all the questions uh, and providing such useful insights. Uh, so just uh, two final questions uh, for you, Brian. So number one, when is the book expected to be out? And number two, where can people go and buy it? Uh, anywhere the books are sold, uh, but most people buy them on Amazon, uh, so it's certainly available there. And the, the release date is April 5th, 2022. And special shout out to you for pre-reading it and providing very, very, very helpful feedback. Okay, thank you so much, Brian. Uh, so this was a lovely session. I hope uh, all of you enjoyed it as much as I did. And uh, uh, so, so this is a special episode. Uh, so... Let's uh, meet again on, on Sunday for our uh, regular episode of the week. And uh, for Sunday, I'm, I'm trying to get another guest. And if, if it works out, um, uh, it, it'll be uh, another very, very insightful 
uh, session. So thank you all very much and uh, see you on Sunday. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. everyone. Bye. Thank you.